As you remember, my friends, the opening of the sixth seal was completed with the content of the two interludes, which we analyzed before the holidays. What remains is the seventh seal, and once this last seal is opened, then the entire book of the volitions of God will be totally unsealed, and these volitions of God are being revealed one by one, by the slaughtered lamb who happens to be our Lord Jesus Christ. With the opening of the seventh seal, we have the unfolding of a new seven series of visions, which is characterized by trumpets. The first seven series of visions uh, had the seals. The second seventh fold has the trumpets. The first trumpet is blown and a vision is revealed. Then the second trumpet is blown by an angel and we have the revelation of another vision and so on and so forth. The time span of these trumpets, and I would, I would like to have your attention span very active here. Again, the time span of these trumpet visions covers the area of this book from the 8th chapter until the 11th chapter. We must point out that we don't have a new time frame or a separate chronological period in relation to the first sevenfold of visions, but what do we have? The, seven, the first sevenfold, seven series of visions being the seals, we analyzed six of them up to now, and, and the last one remains for us to cover today. So the seven seals cover the period from the time that they were recorded, or better yet, they cover the time period between the first presence of Christ up until the second presence of Christ. Therefore, the seven seals with the seven revelations the seven visions pertaining to the opening of these seals cover the entire time span existing between the first and second coming of Christ. The completion of the second sevenfold of visions with the seven trumpets, we have the blown of trumpets now and not seals. An angel blows a trumpet and we have a vision a second angel blows another trumpet, and we have a second vision. And farther down, we will have a third fold of visions with the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And we will learn more when we get to those chapters. But all these revelations do not take up some new time period. They are not successive chronologically where the seven seals take up X amount of years, and after that, the after the seals, the trumpets take up X amount of years. Not at all. We do not have a different time period. Consequently, what we what are these seven trumpets and their seven visions? They come to fulfill and to give a more complete picture, more so than the seven visions that we saw with the opening of the seven seals. The first seven seals give a general description, a general diagram of the world history between the first and second coming of Christ. The second sevenfold of visions 
come to give complete details of the same events during the same time frame. And the third sevenfold of visions with the bowls of the wrath of God serve to reveal many more details. So we do not have different time periods, but the enrichment of the very general diagram given by the opening of the seven seals. What makes the second set of seven visions more distinct is exactly that, the specificity of these visions and the complexity and the disclarity and the interpreters find it very difficult to work with these vague images. And furthermore, these images are characterized by much horror and much drama. All these are unraveled in the analysis of the seven visions of the seven trumpets. And as I explained to you, they are folds or different viewpoints of the opening of the seven seals. And now we are continuing with the eighth chapter, verses one to six. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So who opened the seventh seal? Again, the slaughter lamb, the one who stands in front of the book of the volitions of God. Where John the Evangelist is asked by one of the presbyters, who will open the seals? And a voice was heard. No one can be found. And the elder said, someone can open them. If you can remember a few lessons back, St. John was saying, I was crying much because he thought, how are we going to learn these volitions of God if no one can open the book? And the presbyter said, don't cry. There is someone, the Espagmenon Arnion, the slain lamb. He's opening one seal after the other. In other words, he reveals the journey of the church in time progressively, and he shows what will happen and what are the volitions of God. Thus, we can conclude that the book is the symbol of the volitions of God, as we were saying a while back. And we come now to the opening of the seventh seal. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. The opening of the seventh seal, my friends, presents us with two sides. The first refers specifically to this seventh seal, and the second side refers to the onset of the new sevenfold of plagues being represented from the seven trumpets 
which are blown by the corresponding angels. About the first side, the first part, which deals with this very seal, we could observe this. The silence taking place in heaven is indicative of the rest and peace which will take place at the end of these plagues and at the end of history. Silence. All evil will be placed aside along with all evil people. All passions will stop. Complete silence. Everything will cease. Destruction, cosmic cataclysm, quakes, hurricanes, the heavenly bodies have been moved, and all this at the end of time. When all these things are finished, then complete silence takes over because the seventh seal is the last one. And we see what St. Andrew Caesarea says, often the number seven is taken to relate to Sabbath and the rest of the saints at the end of this age. In other words, everything has come to a stop. This is the idea of the Sabbath. And this is what the first part of the seventh seal wishes to remind that the Sabbath of the week and the sabbatical of history, and that's what a sabbatical is all about, is all about. rest, silence, inactivity, the lack of work, the lack of action, and of course, this will take place at the end of history. End of activity, the end of facts, events, all these things are now finished, and when history finishes, then we have silence or rest. And this sabbatical will be brought about on the entire nature because everything will come to an end. Very often the church fathers talk about the Sabbath or Sabbatismos, and every human being has to go through this. Of course, this is the seventh day, the Sabbath where work must cease and worship must be offered to God. On the seventh day, you will sit still, and on this seventh day, you will absorb the Sabbath to your Lord, your God. You will cease your daily activities so you can offer worship. But in a sense, the life of men is like one week. Six days he works, and these six days are representative of his entire life, and on the seventh day he rests. And this seventh day is death. Because now his body does not have to work. The body is in a tomb. And then if he's faithful and pious, he's in paradise. And there he lives the Sabbath. What is he waiting for? The resurrection of the dead to pass from the seventh day to enter the eighth day. The eighth day is the one of the Sabbath, Imiaton Sabbaton, the first day of the week, the one during which the Lord resurrected. And this is the resurrection of the dead. The seventh day is full of silence, but not the eighth day. There is no silence on this eighth day. The resurrection of the dead will take place. People will take back their lost bodies, and then creation will be totally renewed and it will exist unto the ages of ages, and inside this new restored creation, we will have the eternal doxology of God. So there will be no silence in the eighth day or in the kingdom of God. 
So this silence is the one right after the plagues, a little before the second coming of Christ. When everything would have come to an end and the resurrection of the dead is about to take place. Again, these are schematic or symbolic expressions and this silence will not be exactly 30 minutes as we cannot measure these things. So what is the meaning of about one half hour or as one half of an hour as the evangelist says? St. Andrew says this expression shows the shortness of time during which these plagues will have finished and the earthly things having been completed and the kingdom of Christ will appear. Again, this is the very short period of time where the plagues will stop and the second coming of Christ will be awaited. And this is why the evangelist uses the expression as one half of an hour. It is a symbolic position aiming to show it will not be a complete time period, just like the presence of the Antichrist is not but three and a half years. And this three and a half years is not only a real number, but it aims to show the briefness of time. When the scriptures use the term one half of an hour, it always wants to show the quickness or the uh, briefness of time. However, as we mentioned before, we have the second part of the seventh seal during its opening. And this silence which takes place wants to show the closing of the seven seals, but don't be confused here. It also shows the opening of the seven plagues. These two coincide at the seventh seal. This is a very delicate point to watch for. And we have the same seal, the seventh seal, but the other side now, which is the commencement of the seven plagues. What does this show? It shows that this silence will be followed by something terrible. Again, we need to be careful not to confuse these matters. And uh, we said that the one closes and the other opens. Something else opens. Something awful is about to take place. And this is the unfolding of the seven trumpets, the seven visions from the blowing of the seven trumpets, which show the bewilderment and the shock of the angels before the events which are about to take place. The angels become speechless and they are awaiting uh, what is about to take place. The Sithos of Jerusalem says, a great shock causes silence. When someone is greatly surprised or shocked, he does not speak. And this is why it states that this silence took place in heaven. And now all the angels are eagerly awaiting to see what will happen next. But this, what will happen next, in reality, goes back to the beginning to specify the details of the seven seals, a much better description of the events of the seven seals. And consequently, we have the same time period from the beginning. We don't have any additional time and additional years here. 
We don't go to the end of the seven seals chronologically, and now we begin the seven trumpet calls. The time period is one and the same, from the first until the second time of Christ. I repeated this a number of times, two, three times, and I'm trying to make these things as clear as possible. However, before the unraveling of these events of the seven trumpet calls takes place, we have a certain preparation of these seven visions as we see in these words. And I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Picture this from the area of the armed forces. We have the general, and there are seven lieutenants, let's say, the, the leaders of seven battalions or companies. I don't know the specific or proper names for these military leaders, but they are presenting in front of their highest authority, and trumpets were given to them to carry out a mission. This is how we can picture this scene. They are ready to receive a certain mission, each one taking a trumpet, and his mission will be executed when he will be opening his vision by the blowing of his trumpet, which will correspond to a new plague. We could say here the very thing that's written in the book of Tobit, that the angels truly serve or carry out the volitions of God. It says, for example, there at the 12th chapter, verse 15, to the two bewildered uh, people, Tobit and Tobias, father and son. And the angel says, I am Raphael, one of the seven holy angels, which present the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the faithful in front of God, in front of the glory of the Holy One. Hold on to this. The angels present or carry the prayers of the faithful. They are, my friends, the liturgical spirits, the angels which stand in front of the divine glory with deep reverence, and they are forever ready as liturgical spirits to be sent every diaconia or service. It is also known that the trumpet is used in the Holy Scriptures to denote the commencement of important periods or feasts. Today we may use the cannons or the firings of guns or sirens to kick off a great feast or a festival or to bring these, uh, these events to an end. In the same way, the Jews used the trumpet at the end of some uh, great feast, according to the Holy Scriptures. The trumpets would be used to show the beginning or the end of a certain event, but the trumpet is also used to announce eschatological events, the events which will take place at the end of history, at the end of the world, and especially during the day of judgment and the resurrection of the dead. St. Paul writes, for example, in 1 Thessalonians, 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. For as the Lord in the 24th chapter of Matthew, verse 31 says, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. They will gather all the faithful. 
Then we continue with verse 3. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, and he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. So we have the seven angels in front of the throne, and of course you are well aware of this scene, which is the very same scene which has been completed up to now. But now another angel, an eighth angel, excluded from the number of the seven, came and stood in front of the golden altar. And he took incense, and he came in front of the altar, and he was given much incense. I believe the Greek uses plural here, thymiamata, which is which shows quantity, massive quantities. And obviously someone gave him this incense, and this for the purpose of offering it as symbolic of the prayers of the saints. So this massive quantity of incense is representative of the prayers of the saints. We ran across this before in the book of the Revelation where the angel offers these prayers as incense in front of God. All the prayers of the saints. The content of these prayers include the petition of the coming of the kingdom of God, the strengthening of the faithful, and the punishment of evil. Besides the plagues which are about to follow, and at this point we're still in the introduction of all these plagues, which, by the way, are nothing but an answer to the prayers of the saints offered to God by the angel. So here we see that the prayer of the saints is compared to incense, or the smoke rising of incense rising to heaven, because they take the incense and throw it in the altar to have the smoke rise. I'm sure you remember the 140th Psalm, Let my prayer rise, catefintito, let my prayer be directed, literally shoot straight up as incense before you. But as you notice, the prayers of the saints are also offered to God by the holy angels. This is revealed also by Archangel Raphael, who says to Tobit and Tobias in the Old Testament, I am Raphael, and I took your prayer and brought it before God. I took your prayer and brought it in front of the Holy One, in front of God. And you may ask, doesn't prayer go straight up to God? Must angels mediate? Isn't God omnipresent? Doesn't God know my prayer? Doesn't God know the innermost depths of my soul? My friends, God is everywhere, and he knows it all. However, he wants his will to be served by all these created beings. Thus, inside this diaconate, this diaconia, or service, he wants everyone to taste his glory and his blessedness. That's all. Thus, angels transfer our prayers to God, not because God does not have time to know our prayers. God knows our prayers. But I told you the reason why the angels are assigned to this service, 
So the angels transfer the prayers of the saints. But what seems obvious here is that the prayers are referred to God. In other words, they are arising towards God. The prayers of the saints are presented to God by the angels. Many times we ask, how can a saint know if we're praying to him? I call upon St. George. How can St. George know my problems? Is he present? Is St. George ever present or present everywhere, omnipresent? No, St. George is not present everywhere. St. George happens to be in paradise. Then how does he know? The angels are present who lead or direct these prayers in the name of the saint. In other words, we pray to St. George, the angels take the prayer and direct it to God in the name of St. George. So God can honor the saint to even allow a miracle in the name of the saint because God said this himself, I will honor those who honor me. And since the martyrs and the saints honor God, for this reason, God now answers and gives to the faithful what they ask for from the saints. The angel once again tells to Cornelius, whom uh, he visits, the centurion Cornelius, as you remember from the 10th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, verse 4, your prayers have come up as a memorial in front of God. Therefore, our prayers arise to heaven. Of course, as long as our prayer is proper and genuine, and as long as a man prays without a grudge against his brother in the absence of greed, malice, envy, when a man prays with a loving heart, which presupposes a pure heart, then the prayer arises to heaven. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand, says the holy text of the apocalypse. When the incense, or the incenses, the Greek once again uses plural to show quantity, thymiamata, when the incenses were thrown in the charcoals within the sacrificial altar, the smoke of the incense, being the prayers of the saints, ascended before God from the hand of the angel. And as we said, my friends, this is how the prayers of the saints are received. Here we clearly have the intercessions of the saints, but of the holy angels as well. God wants it this way. Men and angels praying and interceding for other created beings. Created beings praying and interceding for their fellow created beings. God wants it this way regardless of what your Protestant neighbors may want to say and claim. The volitions of God are not always known to us, of course. However, we could offer this understanding. God wants to enhance the communion of love among all his created beings. Because if you ask me to pray for you, this shows and it presupposes love communion, communion of love. So God does not make his creation self-sufficient and autonomous or self-centered. 
but he inspires this bond, this interaction, this syndesmos, the syndesmos of love, the bond of love, if you will. What is the meaning of the golden altar? It symbolizes Christ himself. St. Andrew writes, the golden altar is Christ, on which golden altar every liturgical and every holy and martyrical sacrifice is offered and empowered by. Truly, every prayer becomes acceptable or finds acceptance only through the sacrificial altar name Christ. And this precisely because Christ offered his life, the incarnate Son of God offered his life as an expiatory sacrifice, as illustrious thesia. What all this amounts to is that my prayers, your prayers, will only ascend to God based on the dynamics of the sacrifice of Christ. My prayer does not ascend to God if it does not fall into the golden altar called Christ. Whatever form of prayer, whatever sacrifice may take place, whatever effort to please God outside of the recognition of the sacrifice of Christ as an expiatory sacrifice, any of this is rejectable and unacceptable and sterile and a worthless exercise if it is not done in the name of Christ and if I don't make Christ my representative in his sacrifice. We need to digest these truths very well, my friends, especially in today's ecumenistic trends. We need to be very careful that whatever we offer, we need to offer in the name of Jesus Christ, fully believing in the dynamics of his death and his resurrection. This is very profound a very profound truth that everything is offered on the altar which happens to be Jesus Christ. If we need to have our prayers make it and become pleasing to the throne of God. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. All of this in heaven takes lit charcoals from the altar and throws them to the earth. And when these lit charcoals fell on the earth, there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. This is a symbolic warning signal about all the events which will take place immediately. And this, in a way, breaks the previous silence in heaven. What is this fire? The fire from the altar. This is the wrath of the Lamb which falls onto the earth and it has disciplinary or pedagogical dimensions but also condemnatory dimensions 
it does come to punish those who refuse to repent and to discipline those who would have the ability or potential to repent. The thunderings, noises, lightnings, earthquake, etc., what are these for? The means to instill fear. The Lord said there will be events that will cause great fear towards the end of times. Terrible things that will strike the fear of God in people. St. Andrew of Caesarea says, through all these things which are characterized as means to intimidate, to instill horror to everyone and to motivate those of good disposition to return to God. So this is the final opportunity for people of good intentions to repent and return to God. And the culmination of these horrible scenes, as you will see when we continue, is when the seven angels appear with this preparatory image which says, and the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepare themselves to sound. Consequently, the one angel, by throwing lit charcoals onto the earth, comes to set the stage to prepare us for what is about to take place. And the culmination of this preparation is that the seven angels stand in front of the throne, the throne of divine glory, ready to sound their trumpets in order to initiate these plagues. And we will now proceed with this analysis by the grace of God. And the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And the third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Let's simplify this with a couple words. So, terrible hail these rock-salt-like substances that fall from the sky. And this hail was mingled with fire and blood. And when this bizarre hail fell on the earth, it destroyed one-third of the trees, one-third of the plants, and one-third of the grass. Generally speaking, one-third of the plant kingdom was destroyed. What is this saying? First of all, we see that the first trumpet sound seems to be rather pedagogical in nature because only one-third of the earth is stricken, and we do not have total destruction, but the purpose is to forewarn and to discipline, since only one-third is destroyed. This plague brings to mind, and here I want you to pay close attention, it brings to mind the first and the seventh plague of Pharaoh in Egypt. I will refresh from memory because it is very noteworthy as we will see by going over it. I must also tell you that the seven plagues which come forth from a seven trumpet calls resound the ten plagues of Pharaoh in Egypt. Let's take a look at the first and the seventh plague which are echoed by the first trumpet sound of this angel. And don't forget, and I will return to this point, that these plagues are historical. 
the plagues of Egypt, that is. Let's not forget this. This bears a lot of weight. This is the key to the interpretation of this first plague. So let's talk about the first and the seventh plague of Pharaoh. I will highlight the main points because the text is quite extensive and the first plague is written in the seventh chapter of Exodus and the seventh plague is recorded in the ninth chapter of the same book. As you remember, Moses, in the name of God, with the help of his brother Aaron, uh, Aaron was three years older than Moses, they appear before the Pharaoh and tell him to let the two million Jews go across into the desert to worship their God. Naturally, Pharaoh understands that if these people travel into the desert, they will depart for good, starting off towards the desert of Sinai, and from there they would leave permanently. And this move of so many slaves, so many working hands, it does not uh, enthuse the Pharaoh, and, you know, rightly so, because all these years they were very used to this kind of labor. Who would do all the construction for the Egyptians? And for this reason, Pharaoh Ramses, I believe, is not convinced, and God has already forewarned Moses not to fear if he happens to find opposition from the Pharaoh. And he will give authority to the hand of Moses to bring forth terrible plagues against the Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. And under this pressure of these plagues, he would finally be forced to allow the Hebrews to depart. So Moses and Aaron appear before the Pharaoh and they give him ample warning. However, he refuses and they foretell him about the first plague. He again refuses and the first plague takes place. So Moses and Aaron went in front of the Pharaoh and they did exactly what the Lord commanded. So Aaron lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river. And of course this was the Nile River responsible for much of Egypt's economy. Much of the land is irrigated from the Nile which deposits rich soil deposits in the Nile valleys and this valley is the fruit and bread basket of the entire Egyptian land. The Nile River is so important to the Egyptian economy that without it, Egypt could not exist. The Egyptians came to the point of defying the Nile precisely because of their entire existence being dependent on it. They perceived that what made their country fruitful and well off was this holy river. So Aaron now lifted his staff and he struck the waters of the Nile in front of the Pharaoh. Moses is also present, but this time Aaron strikes the waters of the river in front of Pharaoh and his subjects and advisors. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood and the fish that were in the river died. The water became red like blood. The fish died and the river became kind of smelly and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout the land of Egypt. So they were not able to use the water of the river or the lakes or any of the water 
they had stored in vessels in wooden or clay pots. All water, regardless where it was, it turned red like blood. And now we will summarize the seventh plague. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. So the Egyptians never remember, never in their lifetime, had they seen such terrible hail. Something that we hear in the news sometimes that the size of hail was like walnuts. Well, it must have been bigger than the size of walnuts to say that hail of this size had never fell on Egypt. And this hail struck throughout the entire land of Egypt and all that was in the field, both men and beast. Strange hail struck the entire land of Egypt except the area of the children of Israel. And this is true for the darkness being uh, characteristic of the ninth plague. All the plagues strike the entire Egypt except the area of Goshen where the Jews were. The Egyptians had thickest darkness. They had to crawl to find something. And three days of this. And in Goshen, the Jews had lovely sunshine. So hail struck man and beast. And the hail struck all plant life in the land and broke every tree of the field. So hail devastated and destroyed everything. It leveled everything. Here I must point out to you and this very quickly, that this fire mingled with the hail. It is not necessarily fire as we know fire today, but as the voices are nothing but thunder. So during the hail fall, we have much thunder and lightning. Thunder, lightning, thunderbolts. So during a thunderstorm, especially an electrical storm, we have a great deal of noise, and in the Hebrew language, this is called voices. So this fire that we see here in the text, again, is not regular fire, but the streaks of lightning that accompany the very heavy hailstorm. And the red water was not blood, as the King James translators say, the water did not turn into blood, but it became red as blood. And this reddening has been repeated through history. Now, let's not forget that God does not create something new to use in his plagues. He does not bring elements from heaven to use those plagues here on earth. But he takes and uses earthly elements, existing elements, to bring forth these plagues on the earth. He uses very natural elements. As you see, he uses hail, he uses thunder, storms. So many times we have seen these occurrences taking place repeatedly. As a few years ago, we had something similar. We noticed something on the shore on the shorelines of Florida called red tide. What causes this red tide? What is this? Some microorganisms in the family of dinoflagellates. These dinoflagellates are in the class of cryptogram mosses, which develop in the water and are very toxic. 
uh, remember these newspapers saying that even even beach walking was prohibited because droplets of waters from uh, the breaking waves could prove to be very toxic if they would fall on the bodies of the beach walkers. This is the type of toxicity that developed in the waters from the presence of these dinoflagellates. The water was bright red like blood. So it seems that the river developed a similar phenomenon. But the Nile River did not develop this from something that was obvious to the Egyptians. Keep in mind that somewhere during April and May, the Nile becomes very muddy, becomes inundated with saprophytes, and its water is cloudy and lightly reddish. However, this has nothing to do with this plague because these are simply saprophytes and they're not toxic in their nature or poisonous and the fish do not die and the water is still drinkable. They let the water settle and then they drink it. Here, however, with a red tide, we have toxicity, death and decomposition of the fish causing the river to be odious. This is simply a condition of this plague and we clearly see that we have the phenomenon where nature itself is of course being used but in such a way proving to be harmful to men. This great similarity of the plagues of the revelation, namely the first plague of the first trumpet call, with the plagues of Pharaoh allows us to ponder that the plagues of Pharaoh provides us, provide us with a historical precedent, if you will, a historical typology of the final plagues. We also have other typologies of end-time plagues, such as Sodom and Gomorrah, which burnt with fire and sulfur from heaven. And when we say heaven, we mean the sky and not where God is, not that heaven. When rain falls, we say, the rain is falling from heaven, with this meaning the sulfur and fire fell from heaven. And the destruction was so bad that the cities were turned into mere ashes. Their punishment was exemplary, and no one was saved except Lot and his daughters. Unfortunately, his wife did not make it. St. Peter tells us the following, and I will use St. Peter so you don't think that this is my account. No, I don't tell you anything not supported and based on Scripture or on our church fathers. So St. Peter says in his second epistle, chapter 2, verse 6, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So God gave us an example to show us the lot of those who will live an ungodly life. For those who will live ungodly in the future. So here we see the ten plagues of Pharaoh are a historical typology of the Revelation plagues, much like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's why we should not think that the ungodly will go unpunished. The ungodly will most definitely be punished. And something else very noteworthy here. Let's listen. 
that plagues of the Pharaoh were real. Initially, as we said, they happened to be an historical typology. So obviously, they were real plagues which befell on people and animals, on the bodies of people and of the animals and plants. And they were destructive. All this means that the plagues of the end of times will be real. They are not simply metaphorical or spiritual. I explained this two, three times. We have the historical typology. So based on this, my friends, we cannot see the plagues of the revelation allegorically or metaphorically only. And to say, well, it is possible that the Holy Evangelist means something else. And he wants to present present this something else with a certain image and in this image he uses fire and hail in the form of a metaphor or allegory. Now if the plagues of Pharaoh happen to be an image or simply imaginary only then we can ponder on the plagues of the end of times to be imaginary. However we explain repeatedly that the plagues of the Pharaoh are not imaginary, but they are ontological. They are real. And as we said, they took place in an impromptu time. When? The 15th century before Christ. And these plagues came to let us know that the same thing will happen again. But will it be the same? Only God knows what awesome intensity the plagues of the end of history will have. And this because people will have rebelled from God, will have sinned horribly, and their apostasy, which is already at work, will have brought the Antichrist. Hopefully, we understand, my friends, that we are dealing with realities here. And God has fortified his truths with his previous actions. And his previous enactments are historical typologies. For this reason, Let's not have anyone say, forget it, this is all a bunch of stories. Not so, my friends. These are not made up mythical stories. This is the truth and the harsh reality of things to be. We have the historical precedents. Based on this information, every one of us, all of us, should take care to structure our life according to God's will, lest we find ourselves in the opposite camp in the camp of the apostates and the lawless and away from the camp of the people of God. And God knows how to save his own people. He saved his people in Egypt, in Goshen. The Hebrews were totally unaffected by the plagues that paralyzed Egypt. So God will know. He will have his way how to save his people in the midst of these apocalyptic plagues. It is only a matter of faith. We only need to believe in him with all our heart, all our power of our soul, and to begin to live the necessary spiritual life. And with this in mind, we will continue next Sunday, God willing.